Hello everyone, it's March 8th, 2022. This week it's a laundry list of how spaceflight has been negatively impacted by the ongoing war in Ukraine. There are space stations, rocket launches, joint scientific missions, all in some degree of peril as a result. So let's get an orbital view of the situation and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 349 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. And Ben is off this week, uh, which he said last week. So I guess that's not too much of a surprise. This wasn't uh, this wasn't unexpected. <laughs> so it's just us. Yeah, the, the this week in spaceflight history combo clue. <laughs> where, yeah. Uh, ben provided it and you'll uh, the clue and you'll provide the event. Yeah. But one thing that I wanted to talk about at the top was apparently SpaceX is providing Starlink satellite receivers to uh, Ukraine, but uh, they're being jammed. And I don't know much about this. Um, How much do you know about it that they're being jammed by? Like, exactly how does that work? Like, this is something that I only hear about in movies. Um, Is it just that you blast a lot of signal noise at the same frequency? as the receivers is that how that works i thought you literally send like a giant jar of smuckers smashing okay, yeah. the dish <laughs> to try to to jam them but well that's no, how you uh, do it in space balls but yeah <laughs> you know that's that's a good question i mean that that seems like the way I, I i always had the kind of cartoon picture of that exactly you identify the frequency that they're at and you make it essentially so noisy that the signal becomes degraded or lost essentially but yeah, no, I thought this was cool. I mean, I learned some new things about this. I kind of had a vague sense of hearing a lot of people tweeting about sending Starlink uh, terminals over there. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, we'll see, we'll see. But apparently it was the uh, the vice prime minister of Ukraine had uh, actually requested that SpaceX provide these services to the country. As you can imagine, right, it's useful during a time of war when a lot of infrastructure is being disrupted and things like that are happening. So, yeah, uh, I think that's pretty pretty cool. So in response to this jamming, uh, SpaceX is actually focusing on somehow bypassing this issue. I don't know how they're going to do it, uh, but they're shifting resources to cybersecurity to address the jamming. And according to a tweet from Musk, they have a software update that actually bypasses the jamming. Uh, so I guess this is kind of like a cat and mouse thing where, um, you know, they can shift something. I mean, you know, they can change something and then probably the Russian forces will find a way. Uh, to right. jam it all up again. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, because there's a few things going, right? There's like a carrier signal that kind of lets you know what you're talking to, and then there's a different signal that contains the information, if I understand. <laughs> Very little. I mean, that's uh, as good a guess as, yeah, but, um, as any, yeah. Yeah, but this this does uh, actually have an interesting uh, link to, as, I, as I'm looking at Space News, uh, what we talked about where this might have been a month or so ago with the uh, how with Elon's internal email that he sent around that was leaked about how important getting Starship up so that way they can get the next gen Starlinks on orbit, which means they can start making enough money to cover their very massive amount of expenses that they've been, you know, uh, investing in recently. And so... Uh, Evidently, Musk wrote this might cause a slight delay in Starship and Starlink version 2, but that's just a, a statement with not anything else behind it. And so hopefully it's going to be, I don't know, a, a minor delay. All right, so the main news topic is a bunch of other little things uh, having to do with this recent conflict. All right, so we have a OneWeb launch problem. So Russia is threatening OneWeb launch. So this is because OneWeb launches on Russian launch vehicles. And I believe that, yeah, they launch from Baikonur Cosmodrome, right? So yeah. yeah, they're, yeah. So they're kind of like deep in it. So what is going on there? Yeah, so what happened was uh, they had rolled the rocket out to the pad, the Soyuz out to the pad. It had the OneWebs on there, ready to roll. And then a few hours later, Dmitry Rogozin, head of Roscosmos, basically said that we are not going to launch this unless you meet this ultimatum that has two parts to it. The first is that the British government divests from OneWeb entirely. Um, right? Remember, uh, OneWeb, uh, we thought it was toast, and then uh, I believe it was uh, uh, one of the big uh, uh, Indian conglomerates along with the British government brought it back to life with money. And so uh, the first of uh, these, you know, demands was that 
British government, UK government divest. And then the second one is a promise that they wouldn't be used uh, for any military purposes, which we started off the hour talking about Starlinks being used for military purposes. So, mm-hmm. you know, that is a kind of pertinent thing. And so the, the, the UK uh, business and energy secretary uh, essentially said no. And as far as uh, UK divestment goes, uh, we, we will await a response from our shareholders. Um, but otherwise, uh, they're not going to meet this demand and not going to meet it within uh, whatever 48-hour or short period that Rogozin had given for the ultimatum. Essentially, yeah, like you said, this is, you know, this is one of these Baikonur launches. And so OneWeb pulled its employees out from the, uh, the Cosmodrome and Russia in turn uh, pasted over uh, the OneWeb's livery on the fairing. Uh, as well as the American, British, and Japanese flags, and then took the rocket off the pad and has been dismantling it. And you know, I don't know exactly what happens to uh, the parts of a rocket probably repurposed for a future launch. But yeah, so that was one victim of the uh, of what's happening in space because of the uh, uh, recent or the because of the war in Ukraine. And so, yeah, so so the next step then for OneWeb is, to, you know, what are they going to do? Because if we could talk about a theme from last week, it was essentially that for a lot of the big stuff, Russia was really just harming itself. But there are some companies and, you know, state actors who are being affected by Russia essentially trying to pull things uh, away from them. And so OneWeb is certainly one of these. And so they need to look to non-Russian rockets. And so their constellation, where they're planning uh, 648 satellites over 19 launches, they've got 428 of them done, and uh, they have six more to go uh, with Soyuz's. They, if I'm doing my math correctly, 220 satellites they still want to get on orbit to have that kind of uh, uninterrupted coverage. They have, they're semi-operational now, I guess you could describe it as, but they still don't have that full coverage that they need uh, to be viable. And so they're considering U.S., uh, Japanese, and Indian options for the launch vehicle. Uh, but a quote from a OneWeb executive says, uh, "In the first instance, we're uh, but in the first instance, we're pointing to Ariane and saying you still owe us a number of launches." I guess this it's kind of something we talk about. There's there's quite a few launch vehicles out there. So while this has to be disruptive and difficult for your business, and not something that you would want to happen as an employee of OneWeb, at least Soyuz certainly isn't the only game in town. It's going to be disruptive, but apparently this has such, I guess, national interests claims with the government bailing them out, essentially, that Mm -hmm. they can weather these types of storms. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that this is something that can be fixed. It's just a matter of how quickly, and I don't know how much that affects OneWeb's um, viability as a company. Yeah, right. Very often, certain things need to be done like within a certain time frame. If not, they start you know hemorrhaging money or whatever. Um, this gets pretty complicated. So I don't pretend to even understand it. But sure, um, sure. plus, you know, you have satellites on orbit. Uh, I don't know what the lifetime is of a OneWeb satellite. Probably not as short as a Starlink. I'm guessing. Yeah, they're they're known for being in a, a significantly higher orbit, and so they're actually. I think if, if I remember correctly. On an individual satellite basis, they're more disruptive to ground-based optical telescopes because even though they're further away and thus dimmer, their slower motion across the sky means that during a given exposure with your camera, they're going to be casting more light on a given pixel. And so they're, it's, it's that speed that makes them uh, uh, bad. But as a result, though, they're, you know, they're in higher orbits and thus longer lifetime. So maybe maybe that is kind of okay. They can bide their time in that sense. Yeah. So what is next on the list? <laughs> right. So there's there's then um, some science uh, that's being affected as well. And so one of my favorite spacecraft that I don't think we really ever talk about. <laughs> I don't think and so. Yeah. Most people don't, but it's such a cool uh, mission. So the, the Russian um, Spectre RG spacecraft. And so this is, this is a true X-ray observatory on orbit where by observatory, yeah, on, on the ground you can have uh, observatories that consist of just a single telescope, but a lot of times uh, you call something an observatory because it consists of a collection of telescopes. And so we had done this on, on, on shuttle where we would have a bunch of telescopes on a single mount in the payload bay, but I don't know really about any other uh, space observatories that have, lo- that have independent telescopes that are both basically at the same level. 
you know, developed by different nations. And so SPECTRE-RG is a pair of uh, X-ray telescopes where one of them is Russian built and the other one is German, DLR built. And they are both sitting on uh, the same spacecraft bus. And so it's a true observatory in space. I just think that's such a, such a cool thing. And I, you know, I, I imagine we can see more of that in the future as we send more things things on orbit. But anyway, so because of the, the recent events, Germany uh, has put the telescope in a safe mode. So they turned off their own telescopes. <laughs> it's not like they were able to turn off Russia's uh, uh, X-ray telescope. But it's it's a shame. It's, it's, a, it's a really, really good uh, mission. And you really, you know, you hate to see science disrupted. Obviously, that's small in the big scale of things happening. Again, you know, there's there's a war, and so that's clearly more important than any of the space-related stuff. But you know, it's still so it's still sad to see you know science suffering as a result. Mm-hmm. So that's another one down, and then uh, next up, ExoMars, that is right. likely to be delayed. Yeah. Hopefully, Erosita can be turned back online. It's in safe mode right now, but hopefully, it could just be turned back online at some point in the future. But as for ExoMars, right, which is the joint Russian and European venture to Mars, they've got the 2022 window. And this is, uh, as far as I can tell, the only spacecraft that would be headed to the red planet mm-hmm. uh, during this particular window. And so uh, that, that's, that's in September of this year, 2022. And uh, it sounds like the, sanct- the, the sanctions are going to make that unfeasible. Well, so it's launching in September. And you don't think that that's enough time to maybe find another launch provider? I mean, I know this is, you know, in, this is like an interplanetary mission, so it's no small order. So there's only a handful of launch vehicles that can do this. But it also seems like a pretty important mission. But I, I guess the other question is, what is Russia's level of involvement? Like, is it just as a launch provider? And that's it. Because you- if it's anything more than that, then... You've asked the key questions. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's the two tough decisions. If, if ultimately this partnership for this mission breaks down is the launch vehicle where you have, uh, the idea right now would be a proton. And so they have access to ESA rockets. They've specifically mentioned upcoming ones like Vegas C and Ariane 6. Cause, cause if you have until 2024, that opens things up a little bit. But the other more difficult issue really is that. This is a mission with the Rosalind Franklin rover, but Roscosmos is providing the landing platform, Kazachuk. And so how integrated that is and whether you could make a redesign and have that ready to roll in just a few years, that might be the tougher nut to crack. So what is the nature of the landing platform? Like, how does it work? I'm assuming that it's not a sky crane deal in this case. It doesn't look like the rover is that big. Well, I don't know why. I don't know the exact dimensions, but I mean, in some cases, that's the only option you have. But I don't think this is going to be one of those airbag deals, right? So the current strategy is to use a pair of parachutes. And so I think this is similar to the one, yeah. So this is derived from the one that was used on the Schiaparelli lander, which of course had problems and Schiaparelli became shrapnel. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. That is a mnemonic I can now use as well. <laughs> yeah, shrapnel. Shrapnel. <laughs> so I found an article from several years ago that says that the landing platform has already arrived in Europe. So at the very least, they already have it. I think it's currently in Italy. Um, so apparently it's all set and ready to go. I don't know how that changes things, but... Right. Because I can imagine something like those uh, RD-180 engines mm-hmm. you already paid for them you have people who know how to how to maintain them and get them installed and working on your your rockets that's mm-hmm. one thing but this is the landing platform of a science mission i have to imagine that russian space agency would be involved in the operations of it during its entry descent and landing and so right. i think this unfortunately is <laughs> they can't just be like well too late suckers we already have your landing platform yeah <laughs> just gonna launch it anyway yeah this just makes things really thorny like like exactly where do you draw the line um, right but I, I think that you bring up a good point that they probably just can't operate it themselves i mean maybe i don't know um the you know the complexity of the landing system uh, how easy that is to just you know incorporate into your own launch, which at this point will no longer be on a proton either. So things are changing and it's probably too much too soon. So there's also, I think, an ethical question about whether or not you should be able to take something that other people develop right. and built and just say, well, we're going to, if they could somehow operate it themselves. But hopefully, I mean, hopefully things will get resolved and they can launch on a proton in 2024 and they can see this mission go because they already missed the 2020 one. And so this is, this is unfortunate. That is going to be another two years added. And then finally, in terms of 
ways that spaceflight is being affected by Russia and the war in Ukraine. But South Korea has a few upcoming missions on Russian launch vehicles that it is worried about. It's still going to push forward. Their statement from the government is that there's no changes made. They're not quite like uh, some of these other situations where they're, the, the companies or uh, ESA are actively looking into other alternatives. But right now, Kari's got two big ones coming up. Um, they've got a, the, the CAS-502 uh, remote sensing satellite, which uh, is set to launch on a Soyuz in the first half of this year, so in the next couple months. And so this would be a cool uh, Earth observation satellite, part of a, a five spacecraft, uh, five satellite constellation, uh, with the, the first one was launched last March. And, you know, it's, it's sun-synchronous orbit. Earth observation stuff, you know, the kind of things that governments love to have. and They're useful in a variety of different ways. Uh, and so that one is even more on the chopping block because in terms of getting things resolved, that one's coming up uh, in a hurry. Whereas uh, CompSat-6, uh, which is a multi-purpose satellite, with its key uh, being that it's synthetic aperture radar, and this one was set to launch on an Angara in the second half of this year. So as far as I'm concerned, the second half of the year gives it more time for things to resolve itself. And then the fact that it's an Angara means that who knows whether or not that's going to actually launch when it's supposed to in the first place. <laughs> so in a sense, I think yeah. it's got two things working for it. Like I said, they're sticking to the plan, but at least there's there should be somewhat of a, a breath of relief coming from uh, Kari, Korea's space agency, uh, that their Korean satellite launch vehicle, KSLV-1, uh, was basically it was developed hugely in cooperation with Russia. I mean, in terms of I, I don't know all the details, but like there were there were engines that were Russian used, uh, Russian built, and even more than that, just the, the 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 development and creation of this vehicle was was really really relied on Russia a lot, and that's why last October when the KSLV two launched, you always had to stick in this you know fully Korea's first fully domestic rocket. You always had to tie in that fully domestic part because it was. This was the first time that they, uh, were, you know, this was the first launch vehicle that is entirely built independent of Russia or anyone else for that matter. And so, again, there's that uh, sigh of relief, <laughs> I can imagine, uh, that they at least have this capability. And so while that mission did fail, if you recall, they uh, weren't able to put their payload in orbit, but otherwise the vehicle did get up there. Uh, but their next launch is slated for June 15th. So hopefully that one will go better. And uh, even if these two missions get bumped, uh, the CAS 502 and the CompSat 6, hopefully things will still be cheery for uh, South Korea's space agency, because they have big plans as a country in terms of space. A lot of some interplanetary missions, uh, a lot of low Earth orbit uh, things they want to put up there. And so they got a lot of, they got big plans. Yeah, so basically, that rocket is a modified Russian Angara rocket, from what I can see. But that's the KSLV-1. The, the KSLV-2, which is called Nuri, right? that one apparently much more of their own design. Basically, for this one, they, um, at least according to Wikipedia, they looked to SpaceX as a role model, quote-unquote. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're looking to make a cheap and reliable launch vehicle. From the looks of the rocket, I don't think there's much, I mean, there might be some Russian heritage there, but, uh, again, this is something that, you know, looks like that they built all on their own. So they're kind of well on their way. This does not look like the kind of relationship that China has with Russia, um, you know, in terms of its capabilities in space, where it's pretty much, you know, the rockets, the space stations, everything. It's kind of like take it and slap a Chinese flag on it kind of a thing. Right, right, right. Now, Shenzhou just looks like a sleeker Soyuz to yeah. me uh, in terms of spacecraft, which, again, I just always want to point out, I would love to see this as more and more businesses get in this game. Uh, I would love to see more multi-module spacecraft that launch together the way that Soyuz and Shenzhou's launch. But like, I don't know, a an American take on it. <laughs> uh, hmm. some, some, or a European take or whoever, but just, just somebody else adding that uh, kind of multiple module approach. Is that because like, because the multiple module approach is just that they can't, that Return they- Return well, the whole thing safely? Yeah, it's like you, you're just having to break it up. So, I mean, if you can do it all at once, why not just do that? You can have a Dragon 2, Mm-hmm. Um, and it still needs um, uh, it still needs its service module. But other than that, 
that can dock, you know, the like the astronauts can stay in that until they get to station, then they can get back in, they can land in it. It's and it's just roomier. I don't know. Um like what aspect of the multiple module approach do you like so much? I just think it's so cool. I love the idea that you're sitting in one place, that's where your controls are for maneuvering the spacecraft, and then you can go through a little airlock, <laughs> although it's you know, it just you go through a little portal and a porthole and you're boom, suddenly in a uh a different place that has living space, you know, uh, your habitation module. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's like a mini space station. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of is in that I, sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, everything you said too. I mean, I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. It's it's wasteful, and that's probably why you don't see it and don't hear about plans for it or anything like that. But I I don't know. It's just a silly thing. You should probably just dump this whole segment. <laughs> because, but I nah, think I, I personally think it's <laughs> cool. I just love that idea of. You're traveling, you know, you're on in one section during launch, and then you travel into the orbital module afterwards while you're still heading to station or you're just free flying. Does anybody else think it's cool or am I just totally <laughs> like have this own weird quirky <laughs> well, it's, idea of what counts? As it's definitely very innovative. I mean, that's why it's been so reliable and it's been relatively, you know, inexpensive. It is a workhorse of a spacecraft, you know, so, mm. but I think I tend to like, bigger spacecraft that kind of do it all maybe not so much the shuttle because you know that had its problems but something like starship is just cool to me because that's more like science fiction where you just have one big spaceship and it does it all that yeah. to me is the future um or, or at least it feels more futuristic mm -hmm. that's like a sky lab if they could hang out in the sky lab on ascent you know <laughs> all right so let's move on to short and sweet dennis what's the first one this week First up, company pleads guilty to selling tainted rocket fuel. Anahuac Transport Incorporated has been convicted for supplying tainted fuel to rocket companies, including SpaceX. Between 2012 and 2020, the company had entered into contracts to transport the fuel to the launch sites in tanker trailers, while being required to ensure the tanks did not previously contain chemicals that could lead to adverse reactions with the fuel. However, the company intentionally falsified documents and had, in fact, previously hauled incompatible chemicals. Anahuac has forfeited over a quarter of a million dollars and will be banned from federal contracting for two years. Next up, Iranian launch failure. Recent Maxar Technologies satellite images showed damage at the Imam Khomeini spaceport, likely indicating another failed launch of an Iranian rocket. Scorch marks at the pad are evident, and a rocket gantry appears to have suffered damages. The upright gantry suggests that the rocket never left the pad which is consistent with the U.S. Space Command not detecting any launch. Separate imagery from Planet Labs suggests the launch attempt took place sometime over the last weekend. And finally, SpaceX awarded three more commercial crew missions. Three more orders were placed by NASA for commercial crew missions to the ISS at a price of more than three quarters of a billion dollars each. NASA announced their modification of SpaceX's contract to add these three to the company's original six operational missions covered by the 2014 contract. Space News reports that the per seat cost would be $64.7 million, consistent with inflation since the 2014 estimate of $55 million per seat. NASA specifically identified delays with Boeing's Starliner spacecraft as the reason for the new award. Good thing you went with two, you know? <laughs> okay, stand by. We're looking at it. questions, comments, and correction burns, and uh, some elaborations from Andrew Z, who likes to email us uh, all the time. And uh, some stuff regarding our talk last week. Uh, he sent an email with several points that are that were actually provided to us by Ben. So this is his contribution. Uh, he's not here, but uh, he put this all together for us. Um, and this is regarding the news topic last week about Russia and what it means for uh, the International Space Station. So Andrew Z, he provides some good uh, some good additional context uh in general agreeing with what we were covering last week but also uh a little more uh, detail and some nuance that we didn't quite touch on but uh as far as the ISS and whether or not Russia could ever uh, the the Russian orbital segment could detach and operate independently uh he was echoing the idea that without the electricity and life support that is somewhat dependent on the US uh and Western sections, um, if, if if that integration is there, then it would be not really feasible to go and just spin off the Russian orbital segment, even as much as that goofy little video 
showed that happening. <laughs> I don't know if you watched that, but they basically uh, had a little piece where, uh, yeah, the Russian Orville segment, they, they, they spliced together real footage of cosmonauts kind of moving around through uh, Nauka and other and closing hatches and doing things like that with some CGI of the space station uh, losing the, uh, the Russian segment. My guess would be if they did decide to do this, then they would obviously need to fly up a lot of other hardware to make it an independent station. They, maybe it could be done, but they would need to build kind of, you know, a whole 50% more of a station or something, you know? I mean, yeah, they'd have to add the, uh, the U.S. orbital segment replacement module, they could call it, you know? It's yeah. actually something that, that's going to take care of all those uh, functions. Which would be a pretty insanely difficult operation, I would think, just considering how long it took to build the station in the first place and obviously a lot of it's already in place but just having to move you know doing like real construction in space on that level seems like it i mean i don't know it, it just all seems kind of crazy to me and yeah um it sounds like a very uh rigorous thing to suggest but i don't put much stock in and it and they're they're not they weren't flush with cash before yeah. and they certainly aren't going to be now after all these sanctions are biting so it's it's yeah it's just uh it's just a like i said it's a goofy video one other suggestion is that maybe they could join up with china's space station but they might be considered an unwelcome house guest um and again i don't know how feasible that is i mean i just don't know enough about the details of you know how that would work but it's not as simple as like hey you got some stuff up there in space and we do too let's put them together like um how could you make a viable space station out of that it's not as though they complement each other like whereas the american and russian segments do on station mm -hmm. right but these were but the chinese space station is sort of you know built independently and the russian space station is dependent and i just don't i just don't understand uh, or i i just don't see that realistically happening i mean and since ben is a big space station nerd i feel like he could provide more information, he could shed some more light on this, but I'm guessing he would probably agree. He would just, you know, have more details as to why. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I agree with you too. I like the International Space Station was developed and planned, and the hardware was built with them being compatible in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Piggybacking onto the Chinese space station uh, would not be developing something that was, you'd be just doing that, piggybacking. And so uh, the idea. There'd be a lot of lead time. <laughs> Russia would have to develop whatever they were adding or contributing specifically to the already existing uh, space station specifications. And again, I don't think they have the money to do that, and not anytime soon. And this this was an interesting thing that uh, we we hadn't really talked about that uh, Andrew uh, highlighted, and it's it's it's. It's an it's a speculation, I guess, or a sort of uh, a different perspective. Uh, what about you know if he's if he's saying these things and being threatening in the sense, what if the shoe ends up on the other foot and we have American Congress folk basically getting pissed off and start doing the same thing uh, about. You know they they've already ordered the divestment of rocket, Russian rocket engines for U.S. military launchers and maybe they do the same thing for the ISS. They start maybe the ISS does get sunk essentially because uh, they legislate that NASA needs to divest of Russian hardware and interaction on the space station, and so yeah maybe maybe she accidentally gets uh, people who don't understand or care about the continuing operations of the space station as much as they care about their own politics, and they in a in a fit <laughs> essentially go and put the station itself on the chopping block ultimately because of otherwise <laughs> yeah. just think about it we're, we're gonna have to keep operating and working with russia on the space station in order to keep the international space station and mm -hmm. it's not going to be around forever but there's still a lot of time for that right this 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 war is ongoing but you know we're, it's still you know the 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 after effects of this are probably going to be felt for years if not decades then andrew provided a link to a tweet from rogazin yeah that shows them covering andrew up the, had also noticed yeah that their that, one that web silly yeah. that silliness where yeah they're covering up the one web rocket flags uh the united states japan and a couple others with uh yeah 3m adhesive tape it looks like which yeah you can see yeah i can see the uh 
that's exactly what it is. So they, yeah, they're not really painting over it. They're just like putting down some tape over it to cover it up. And 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 what I didn't uh, realize the the irony that Andrew's pointing out is that this the 3M stands for Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company. <laughs> so they're using American-made materials to cover the American flag. And then there's one thing I I wanted to add where uh you know we have such a great Discord. Uh, I don't think. I know I don't say it often enough just how much I love the information that you guys are posting in there all the time. But uh, one thing MMC had had written in there that I liked was another way of kind of flipping something on its head and thinking of it from a different perspective. Uh, I'll just read uh, their comment. If Russia gave up on ISS in 2024, then you talked about what might happen to Russia's human spaceflight. But consider the money that it'd free up for Artemis and the moon. You, you can't move money easily. Once it's already been earmarked for something, but longer term, yeah, if that's that that's money that's no longer being spent on that, then that's money that you can use for the next generation kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at the bright side. Yeah, that's that's full. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you said, um, once it's earmarked for something, though, you know, reappropriating that money can be difficult. I mean, you could look at it like you know, hey, the ISS is getting kind of old, and we need to move on to other things. And this was just you know the final nail in the coffin that just kind of said, hey, let's, you know, just do away with it. It's kind of like, uh-huh. I don't know, it's kind of like, well, this is a bad example, kind of like how movie theaters have not been very popular and then the pandemic happens and it's like, okay, sure. but I think maybe they're coming back. So maybe that's not the best analogy, but it's like, you know, it was kind of on its way out anyway. Um, uh-huh. And I hate to say that about Station, but, you know, at some point uh, we're going to need to move on to, you know, some bigger and better things. And and I do want to highlight Defkin's comment in the chat. At $4 billion per Artemis launch, I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. They, they did just have that congressional hearing. I only caught little bits of it. But yeah, uh, the Artemis, the money's flowing around for Artemis. That does not look good. Doesn't sound good. And we kind of already knew it, but when you actually yeah. see these listed. That's why I'm, I'm a big fan of not using the word billion. And just talking about $4,000 million per Artemis launch to really give you a sense of just how stupid amount of money that is. Yeah, but thank you, uh, Andrew and MMC. Um, all right, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. And, you know, this week we got no winners. So the clue was watery potato. No one got the correct answer. And that is because, and I think this is Ben's fault. I don't think you wrote this, and I know I didn't. Uh, we got the wrong year. Uh, we got the right date wrong year um the date was supposed to be 1985 but uh, we had in our show notes 2013 so if you couldn't guess what happened in 2013 uh during this time of the year regarding uh watery potato that's why so ben's numerical dyslexia strikes again but yeah let's talk about the event anyway because it's pretty interesting mm. all right so the event was on the 13th of march 1985 and it was the launch of geosat so this was a multi-year high-precision altimetry mission, uh, specifically to measure the altitude of the water of the Earth's oceans, right? So normally we would say that, say mm. that in terms of depth, but really we're talking about um, altimetry here. This is a mission to basically get a good idea of the Earth's geoid. And what's interesting is that this is a, is that this was a classified U.S. Navy mission. And We'll talk about why, but I'm, I'm still not sure why really. Like, I don't know why this needed to be classified. But yeah, this was a classified geodetic mission by the U.S. Navy. So I guess first we should talk about what a geoid is, right? Um, yeah. So maybe you can explain it better. But basically, the Earth's shape is, you know, roughly, and this is where the clue comes in, kind of like a potato in that it's like an oblate spheroid. So it kind of has a squat spherical shape. But the geoid is basically the shape that a fluid such as water would take when acted upon by the various changes in the local gravity of the earth. So you would have this kind of this odd little bumpy weird shape if the earth was covered with water and if you could actually see such a difference which obviously you can't actually see it but i mean it is there but we're talking about very small changes in quote unquote the altitude of the earth's oceans it's like a contour map of the gravity field of the earth that the ocean follows and the one thing that i can add maybe that's interesting is i know from uh following some people on climate twitter that there can be some pretty wild variations locally when it comes, or regional, I should say, when it comes to things like, uh, let's say, hurricanes. Like they can lift uh, the ocean underneath them by a huge amount. So it's 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 very weird. We, we think of the water as just well, it's going to be basically flat across the board, but it's you know with maybe just waves happening. But instead, 
it really can have these large scale uh, changes happening to which is right so that that's true and yeah there are some very large scale changes with things like hurricanes but actually uh this mission is uh, specifically to take measurements they can kind of cancel out that noise. So like you're just right. like measuring the Earth's gravity or the effect that the gravity of the Earth has on uh, the Earth's oceans. Right. So, Sorry. The, yeah. A, a hurricane doesn't change the geoid. It's just yeah. – it's, it's the only interesting thing I can really add about sea level. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sea levels do change a lot. And I, and I mean I've certainly experienced that with hurricanes. You know, storm surge is a big thing and it's actually caused by not necessarily – wind pushing waves in or anything, but because the lower pressure, I guess, causes a rise in sea level. I think that that's the correct that's, explanation. That's what I thought, yeah. It's almost like a yeah. suction effect. Right, yeah. Um, kind of pulls it up. So again, getting back to why this is a classified naval mission, um, I couldn't find much except in one paper that said that for some reason, and that was their words, the U.S. Navy thought that it would be good for submarine captains to have a good knowledge of the Earth's geoid or how that affected local sea level. But the extent to which it affects it, I believe, is what, something like centimeters? So it's not a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So why this is in any way strategically beneficial or, I mean, you know, this was all happening during the Cold War. So you can kind of see why, you know, certain things would be um, important for submariners. But uh, the Earth's geoid, I just, I'm not putting it together. <laughs> um, yeah, I would think of it as, a, you know, just a, a scientific mission. And to be fair, this was a scientific mission. And a lot of that information was later declassified. And it is been very beneficial it's just i don't think it benefited any submarines at all <laughs> I, mm. I, I don't know what the u.s navy got from this that was so that was so useful but yeah so the earth is a potato and, and there's lots of water on it i guess that's the clue that's where the clue comes in a watery potato um so sorry ben if that's if you were thinking something else but that's the best that i got so let's talk about geosat itself so it's a 635 kilogram dry mass satellite uh, not Huge, but pretty big. I think the last time I did this, this week in space flight history, I talked about a scissor boom, and I'm going to talk about one again. This one is a six meter scissor boom. This is a, a gravity gradient boom, and that's how the spacecraft keeps itself stable. And at the end of the boom is a 45 kilogram mass, and this is meant to keep the satellite pointing down within one degree of nadir. So basically, pretty much pointing straight down and it can do this 98% of the time. I don't know what the other 2% is, but basically most of the time it's pointing to within one degree of nadir. My guess is uh, gravity gradient stabilization isn't perfect. And so there'll be some oscillation off of that. And so that might be what that percent is referencing. Probably, yeah. And and they had some other systems on board uh, just in case that happened. Apparently, they didn't really need them, but perhaps they did here and there. But um, at least during initial deployment, it was not necessary. So, yeah, you have this long boom. You have this 45-kilogram mass. And then at the other end, which is like the business end, you have a series of solar panels that are kind of all bound up and they're faceted. There are eight facets and uh, each one has two panels that are essentially joined. They um, extend away from the center of or the actual spacecraft bus. So they kind of form what looks like a shuttlecock um, or mm. kind of like a feather duster. That's a good way to put it, yeah. I don't know, like a trumpet or something that's long and then has a flare at the end. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what the satellite looks like. Yeah. If you flip it on your head, it's almost like there's a long stem and then like a little uh, flower at the end opening yeah. up. Yeah, kind of like a little flower that points straight up, um, or in this case, straight, uh, straight down. Down at the end. Um, yeah. So the deployment with the scissor boom, um, once it had been launched, uh, separated from the second stage, the scissor boom deploys one meter. Um, and then at that point, it has to release two onboard momentum wheels and it spins one of them up. Uh, but the other one does not need to be brought online. And then it maneuvers its pitch axis to orbit normal with roll control thrusters. So basically it has to get itself in the right orientation and it uses uh, the attitude control thrusters for that. Um, now, spacecraft axis, I never know which is which. Um, we've talked about that before. I don't know what the pitch axis, like what you would consider the front, the back, and like the XYZ and pitch roll. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure which end is what. <laughs> um so yeah. I couldn't tell you. Well for a spherically symmetric spacecraft like this, I mean you get to choose what your body fix frame is, but yeah, if you wanted to do one with uh pitch roll and yaw, then I think um and, and, and you can you can 
you can choose it to be non-intuitive because we we think that they need to be like a like an airplane's pitch roll and yaw, but they don't. It's just it's just your system for how you want to describe the attitude of your spacecraft. And if you have mm. your pitch be what we would typically think of as a yaw, that's fine. Pitch roll and yaw are just the labels for mm -hmm. uh, you know around this axis versus that axis versus that. Right. They call it three, two, one. Apparently, um, they could have called it Z, Y, X, and Mm -hmm. <laughs> you choose whatever you want to be your x y and z so anyway yeah exactly which is why it's so hard to tell because i mean spacecraft come in all shapes and sizes so it kind of doesn't matter you know right. which one you pick and having to maneuver it to orbit normal right so this is you know basically pointing uh perpendicular to the prograde motion how would you describe it? like i'm assuming that the it's, right hand rule comes into play here or it's normal yeah it's normal to the plane of the orbit so like you say it'd be 90 degrees to right motion you're traveling and so yeah so i guess if you did a right hand rule if you curled your fingers in the direction that the orbit the spacecraft moves in the orbit then your thumb would be pointing Point in normal. the positive normal uh, direction so after they've maneuvered the spacecraft in the correct orientation with regard uh, to normal it extends the scissor boom to its full six meter length from there it allows for gravity gradient capture so i guess it has to wait a little bit and you know it probably oscillates a little bit you can kind of intuit uh, that it takes a while for it to kind of like settle in that perpendicular and downward direction towards the earth mm -hmm. um, at least that's how i imagine it so let's talk about how you despin the spacecraft okay so this actually used uh, a double yo-yo despin cable or two cables so basically the cables were actually wrapped around the solar panels which as i said were kind of all bound together and then they you know bloom open so basically the yo-yo cables are holding the whole thing together and then they are uh released which causes both a despin plus like it allows for those panels to come open which is kind of innovative so that's how the thing is held together in the first place is those yo-yo despin cables sounds weird and it doesn't sound very precise to me like i kind of imagine uh despin cables being kind of like rolled up or something but they were just kind of wrapped around i mean i'm sure in a very precise fashion but they're mm. you know wrapped around holding the solar panels together and as i said uh, each facet has two panels which are on a kind of hinge so one cable um, is wrapped around the bottom portion on one set of panels and then the other one the upper portion which is then attached to the spacecraft body um, because once the panels deploy they kind of spread out in a, a biconic fashion so it's not just a straight cone it's kind of like a cone with a change in angle so that's how they despun the spacecraft and that despin worked very well they didn't need any maneuvering thrusters or anything for that so it was this whole deployment went very well they did need to make any adjustments to the orbit or anything i mean again they would need to do so like later on just because of various perturbations but the actual deployment went very well so let's talk about the velocity control system um this is interesting they had 84 pounds of freon stored in six tanks and i've been using metric up until now but uh, this was written this you know this this one particular part i don't know why was uh, written with imperial units so i'm just going to go with that so you have 84 pounds of freon stored in six tanks at 2700 psi that is then reduced to 15 psi at the thrusters for just 0.01 pounds of force the total amount of uh, propellant once expelled would be capable of 23.4 meters per second delta v but this was not needed um, again the orbital placement was very good they didn't need to do any of that so it's kind of like a james webb space telescope thing where they can just you know save their propellant um they kind of got it right the first time so that's kind of the spacecraft and deployment now let's talk about the actual radar altimetry now i didn't mm. go any i didn't go into any details on the radar itself except that again this is to measure uh the distance between the spacecraft and the surface of the ocean at various points above the earth and this was put into a sun synchronous orbit i don't think i mentioned that 108.1 degree inclination i believe makes sense you want you want to cover the whole earth or at least most of the sun synchronous but not quite so after three days it kind of comes back to where it started but off by about four kilometers and then it can start you know like tracking from that point um and then if you do that long enough you you have basically covered the whole earth in four kilometer increments and i believe that that's how that orbit works a uh, pretty interesting orbit <laughs> mm. and that was all part of the gm which is uh the geodetic mission i didn't mention that this satellite was actually broken up into two missions so the first one the one that we're talking about or they commenced just after the launch uh, that was called the geodetic mission then there was one after that which was called uh the exact repeat mission which was basically to follow on 
um, a previous satellite mission, not this satellite, but one that had launched some years prior. And it basically went into the exact same orbit, picked up where that one had left off and continued to take measurements. Um, but yeah, that was a different mission. Um, this one, I guess, is the one that we're primarily talking about. And so how did it transmit this data? So when the satellite was passing over a ground station, it could do real-time transmission of all the telemetry. But when it wasn't, it had to um, record this data. So it used two high-density tape recorders, and they could record uh, 10.205 kilobytes per second of data. And each tape had a 10-minute overlap. So you would use one tape you would record, and then before that one ended, the other one would kick on 10 minutes prior, and then that one would start to record. Once they passed over a ground station, they would then do a data dump, um, and then they would start the process all over again. So um, pretty innovative way to do it. So you're basically recording this digital information, but with a high-density tape. So I'm assuming it's just some kind of magnetic tape, kind of like they did back in the day. I mean, this is the 80s. Yeah. The recording span of each of these tapes is between 10 and 13 hours. I don't know why the variability, maybe just because depending on the data that, that you were gathering, maybe it would take up more of that tape. But if it's a constant stream, I'm not sure. There was some degradation of the tape over time. So maybe that's what that's addressing. Uh, the second mission, the exact repeat mission, which uh, started in November of 1986. So this was about one year later. Um, and that one lasted for four years, that one maneuvered into what's called the CSAT orbit. And the CSAT was the previous satellite mission that was, I believe, sometime back in the 70s, or actually, yeah, 1978. Um, and that was to demonstrate the feasibility of orbital observation of oceanic phenomenon. So basically, that was the first mission to see if this one could be done. So the declassification of all this information, that started in 1990. So up until 1990, we didn't know anything about any of this. Um, this is all kept classified because I guess we didn't want the Soviet Union knowing about the Earth's geoid. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, they declassified it partially. So uh, just the measurements they were taken between 60 and 72 degrees of latitude uh, south of the equator. So that's just above the Arctic Circle. I'm not sure why just above Antarctica. This is like, there's so much about this. This is just weird. Like why it was classified. I can't well, I think, figure that out. I think the key is if we just knew enough about submarine operations mm -hmm. to know why um, the geoid would matter. And then that I think makes a clear enough link to why we would then not want uh, the Soviet Union or other nations in general to have that information as well. As yeah. Yeah. But I can't think of what how that could be beneficial to a submarine like because these are very small well, differences here like can you think of a scenario well i mean maybe you know for their maneuver so <laughs> totally making stuff up uh i guess it would affect the pressure at whatever depth they're at to some extent mm -hmm. uh it might affect what is happening for ships that are on the surface that might be the targets of the submarines i don't know like submarines are it's a it's a tricky thing right you've got this this thing that you want to make sure you can maneuver around safely at different depths and not end up getting, you know, there's there's that weird thing where we've lost submarines where they get into this this feed, positive feedback loop where they end up just sinking uh, the whole time. They kind of lose their buoyancy, essentially. I, I don't remember the details, but I have no idea. It's, it's my real answer. But... <laughs> <laughs> Good enough guess, yeah. That's what I do. I, I vaguely say things that are <laughs> happening and say, well, surely, maybe there's something about yeah, no, I don't know. That would be cool if anybody, you know, in the chat is a submariner or has any friends that wants to let us know. Yeah. So in 1992, uh, there was another declassification of more of uh, the data, and this was for everything south of uh, the 30th parallel south of the equator. So basically, you know, like 30 degrees latitude um, and south of that. So a little bit more information. And then the rest of it was declassified in 1995 after the ERS-1 mission, um, which that was a mission that kind of did a lot of the same stuff and then some. So I think at that point, uh, this is information that was already you know publicly known. And so maybe they thought, why well, keep it classified if it's already known? Uh, they have the same information. I don't know. We'll just have to let that remain a mystery. But it's good that, you know, this was all declassified because it's very useful information. And uh, it helped us get for the first time a good picture of the Earth's geoid, um, which I think is neat, uh, just for purely scientific reasons, uh, never mind submarines. Sure, sure. That's basically it. So um, that is Geosat and uh, its observations of the watery potato that is Earth, I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> Unless the satellite is the potato, but I seriously doubt it. Yeah, right. One's, one's a little more potato-y than the other, I think. Well, thank you, David. That was a, a wonderful look into a 
interesting mission, and if anyone knows about the, the submarines, um, why they care about the geoid, um, I was able to Google and find out that some submarine data was used for measuring the geoid in the first place. But uh, okay, yeah. well. Um, as for this, though, if you have any ideas, we love to hear them. We uh, love for you to contact us in general. So always feel free to shoot us an email. <laughs> Maybe that's why, if it was known that the submarines were helping to measure the geoid, that would give away their location and their patrol routes or something like that? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. I have mm. no idea. Because obviously submarines need to <laughs> remain anonymous. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No idea. So, moving on to next week. All right, the date range is the 15th through the 21st of March. And, Dennis, what is the clue for that one? Next week in 2003, bringing fire to icy worlds. Bringing fire to icy worlds. Sorry, that's a good uh, George R. R. Martin book title, <laughs> I, would, I would think. Oh, yeah, that could have been good. Uh, a, a mission of – oh, I actually like that. Maybe a, a mission of ice and fire? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a Rocket Lab mission Oh, uh, at, some title, point, at some yeah. point, yeah. <laughs> a mission of ice and fire. All right, so that's the clue in 2003, bringing fire to icy worlds. Um, and if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So upcoming space flight events. Let's move on to that. And we don't really have much, um, not much in the way of launches, but we do have a spacewalk. So what's that spacewalk? Yep, we've got we've got the combo, the two events, all uh, yep. both related to the spacewalk. And so before a spacewalk, you got to have your spacewalk preview briefing. And so on Monday, March 14th, the Expedition 66 Spacewalk Preview Briefing will air on NASA TV. Uh, last week, we had said that it was going to be on March 8th, but it looked like that that was maybe a typo or some issue uh, with NASA's um, uh, website uh, giving the upcoming schedule. So in any event, all is well. Uh, keep an eye out for that at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on NASA TV. Now, after watching that and you know what you <laughs> have coming uh, and what to expect, then the next day on Tuesday, March 15th, um, will be uh, spacewalk number 79. And so this is, uh, again, as Ben had mentioned last week, for the iRosa 3A power channel preparations with coverage beginning at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time and the spacewalk beginning at 7.50 a.m. Eastern Time. And this is going to be uh, Kayla Barron and Rajachari uh, going out there to get to work. So that is your upcoming combo spaceflight event. All right. And with that, uh, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Deathkin, Mike, Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Colin, Chubby, Gopal, VT, and The Greek for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the Orbital Mechanic slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.